0: This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is Professor Woody Holton from the University of South Carolina, where he's the McCausland Professor of History. And he has a new book out entitled, Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution. With that introduction, Woody, welcome to the Journal. I'm really, really glad to be back, Walter. Thank you. Let's talk about, what is the hidden history of the American Revolution? What have you dug up?
1: Well, mostly what I've done is told the traditional story in chronological order, but with a slightly different take on each uh, incident. And one that I've been thinking about a lot lately, because I know you're an expert on this one, is the Battle of Cowpens, January 17, 1781. And what interests me about Cowpens, most of all, we could talk about a lot of aspects of it, um, are the maps. Because almost every map, in fact, every map that I could find of Cowpens places the broad river right behind General Morgan's It's about camp. five
0: miles away. And
1: they all get it wrong. and And there's a reason I think they get it wrong is that uh, Morgan said at the time that he he was five miles from the river, but years later he said, "No, no, no! I backed my army up against the Broad River so that it, sort of as a backstop, so they wouldn't run away, and that's because I had militia and." As you know, he used militia very effectively uh, at Calpens. It's kind of fairly well represented in Mel Gibson's movie, The Patriot, how they fired first and then ran and then the the, uh, oncoming Tarleton's uh, troops had to deal with the Continental. He he used them well, but then he also used them in another sense after the battle to explain a mistake that he'd made and that could have cost him the battle. It didn't. Of course, it was a great American victory. But what Morgan's mistake was, was the same one that Buford had made earlier, uh, the previous year, and that is he let Bannister Carlton catch up with him. Morgan, although we know that he won, but uh, when he was there on January 17th, a couple hours before dawn, he got word that Carlton was just a few hours away, and so... Morgan was not able to do the smart thing he had planned to do, which was to get on the other side of Broad River and then defend the river. It's much easier to defend a river than it is to defend your army in an open field. So he got stuck in this open field and, um, and in fact, said in a letter that he wrote just nine days after the battle, who they were starting to turn my flank. So I had no choice but to attack the British head on. And, and, of course, he won.
0: He got caught by events, and like a good commander, he took, he he made the best of a bad situation. Now, what is different when you walk the Calpens battlefield now, had you walked it twenty years ago? Twenty years ago, it had been turned over a century into a sentimental Victorian park Uh with trees and everything, so it was open. Right, it's, but the hills were very. I mean, the terrain was important. Uh, Tarleton did not see how Morgan had arranged his troops.
1: Right, and and that's one of the things that's wrong in the movie. Given it's it's not a big mistake, but they they kind of imply in the movie, the Patriot, that that Morgan had hidden his uh, army behind the, the hills. I think it was just a natural. Um, advantage. But it sure it sure helped.
0: Well, there, there are a lot of things about the Patriot, and we could spend four shows yes. talking about Hollywood <laughs> and history. It, it's interesting what Morgan said later about he was afraid they were going to run. But, as you know, at West Point, at the Command and General Staff School, the Battle of Calpens is still taught. It is a classic double envelopment. Absolutely. So, what we're very nicely saying is that in years after the battle, Daniel Morgan did a revisionist history.
1: Right. And the mapmaker—and I don't blame him. I mean, you know, that's sort of human nature. Uh, and I'm not even mad at the mapmakers, but I do think it's intriguing because we all talk about how historians of various generations have their biases. I'm very aware of my biases. We all have them, but mapmakers have those biases, too.
0: So what are your biases since you're a 21st century historian?
1: Well— my biases are those that I think most people share with me, that we're just acutely conscious of our internal conflicts in America. Many people think that we're, that the United States of 2021 looks a lot like the United States in the 1850s, uh, where there's regional conflict and um, ethnic and other kinds of conflict. But I'm really conditioned by that conflict that we're engaged in now to look for conflict uh, in the 18th century and I think just to anticipate what a critic might say, that critic might say, well, you may be seeing conflict where it's not there but that's why I say I think a, a person reading about the American Revolution should read say my friend, uh, I'll call him my frenemy, Gordon Wood who is really the dean of scholarship on the American Revolution and a fantastic writer. He. Um, he doesn't play down conflict entirely, but he doesn't stress conflict. He, it, um, you could almost call him a consensus writer. Even when he writes about the ratification or the adoption of the Constitution, which was a very conflicted thing, he will tend to focus on um, what people agreed on. And, and it's easier to do that when you focus only on on wealthy white men who are writing the documents, which is his mm-hmm. – Primary uh, primary focus. It's not the only people he talks about, but that's his focus. So but, my point is: read Gordon's well, Gordon Wood's book, but read mine too, and then figure out
0: somewhere in the middle what you made. Well, think see, is ironically, an older, more popular history like Miracle at Philadelphia actually dealt with the conflicts.
1: Well, can I say and just sponsor to that real quick? I think we can't count on progress in history writing. I'd like to think that things get better and better, but sometimes. Uh, And of course, it's all in the eyes of the beholder, but sometimes we historians, like everybody else,
0: we regress. Well, I want to talk about two things about the physical nature of your book before we get into more discussion. One is the title. You took that from a quotation. Explain that for me. Liberty is sweet.
1: Well, a whole lot in my book is meant to... I don't want to say deceive, but but to kind of put people off their guard a little bit because the phrase liberty is sweet sounds like it might be something Patrick Henry uh, said or some other uh, active person in the revolution, but it actually comes from a guy named Lund Washington who was a cousin of General Washington and who ran Mount Vernon while George Washington was off outside Boston bottling the British up in Boston with his newly formed Continental Army. So early in 1776, Lund writes George saying, I'm sorry to report to you that the servants as well as the slaves here at Mount Vernon are thinking about running away from Mount Vernon because there are so many opportunities provided to servants and slaves by the war. Any war leads to chaos and people who feel oppressed can take advantage of that chaos to get away, but also, as you know, Walter, not everybody does, that the British had issued an Emancipation Proclamation in 1775, so right before Lund Washington wrote George Washington, and so that's what Lund Washington was talking about when he said liberty is sweet. He said, you know, we're going to have to deal with people, people that you own, George, escaping to the British.
0: Because liberty is sweet and they want to taste. All right. So, are you talking about Lord Dunmore's Proclamation in Virginia? Yes. So that because that really was not continental wide. It's specifically with with Virginia, right?
1: That's. um, He said he put a lot of conditions on it, but he said if you can get to my side and if you're owned by a patriot. Um, and you're able and willing to bear arms, which seems to imply men, although the majority of the people who joined him were women and kids. So if you meet all those conditions, then you are enlisted. He didn't say specifically Virginians, but you're right. He was targeting Virginians. But I think it's worth uh, saying, and, and I think you would have a lot to contribute to this, Walter, from your expertise, that there was some cooperation with the British Navy captains in Charleston Harbor with the enslaved people who escaped, to Sullivan's Island. And I really like talking about that because you've mentioned several times on the journal that Sullivan's Island is what my dissertation advisor, Peter Wood, called the Ellis Island of black Americans since mm-hmm. something like two-thirds of our African or uh, more than a half of our African ancestors came through Sullivan's Island where they had to perform quarantine. So it's the entrance to slavery. It's also the exit from slavery for a small number of people, of, of black South Carolinians in late 1775. And so there was, you're right, there wouldn't be another formal Emancipation Proclamation until 1779, when Henry Clinton issued one as he was getting ready to invade or liberate the South. But there, were, there was informal cooperation and much more than that, there was a belief among whites that there was informal uh, cooperation between the British and the blacks. So much so that when the South Carolinians adopted their militia association in 1775. Um, They said, they cited, okay, generally Lord North is a tyrant, um, the, the prime minister of England, of Britain. And second reason they gave was Lexington and Concord. And the third one was instigated insurrections. There's a lot in those two words, slave revolts, but not just slave revolts, slave revolts that were instigated by the British. So, they probably weren't very correct that the British governor was supportive either in North Carolina or South Carolina uh, of African-Americans. or uh, It was probably more true that the Royal Navy captains were. But what's definitely true is that whites thought that royal officials were cooperating with African-Americans. Yes,
0: yes. And, and of course, there is the incident where uh, a free Black Harbor pilot is hanged. Thomas Jeremiah. And at the end of the revolution, South Carolina's enslaved population had decreased by 25%.
1: Yes, but here's how my view changed, partly uh, after reading uh, Sylvia Frey's book. She has sadly just died, a a wonderful historian of the war in the South and of religion in in the South. But she points out that the British were really bad allies to African-Americans. Yes, they did keep their promise um, to many. Uh, If you can reach our lines, we'll recruit you to fight on our side and reward you with freedom at the end of the war. But they also were doing the same thing that Thomas Sumter was doing, which was capturing slaves owned by the enemy and not liberating them, but just transferring them from one owner to another. And probably we can say, in most cases, worse conditions because—go ahead.
0: Well, and of course, how else could a, a young British officer buy his next promotion
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, there, There were a couple of British officers who made a killing and you could almost say that literally because for blacks, almost as much as for whites, a trip to the Caribbean or in Virginia, they often sent them to the lead mines near where I was born in southwestern Virginia. Those are death sentences.
0: Well, there is that wonderfully mysterious Black Carolina Corps
1: Yes. Yes. Which, um, I, I know you've talked to my uh, graduate student, uh, Gary Selleck, a former graduate student, now Dr. Selleck, who is one of the editors of the Thomas Jefferson Papers today, wrote his dissertation on the Carolina Corps, who were formed here in South Carolina, as their name indicates, but then went on to heroic service in the British Army after the American Revolutionary War in the Caribbean. But I should put heroic in quotation marks because a lot of what this black Carolina Corps did for the British Army was put down slave rebellions Mm -hmm. by by other Africans. But my favorite part of the Carolina Corps story occurred back when they were still here in Carolina in 1782, and that is there's these scattered references, which, which neither Gary nor I have been able to really pin down, but Gary's got more on it than I do to black dragoons. And most of your listeners know that a dragoon is a guy on a horse. And to me, that's a hell of an image after all these years of slavery to see a troop of uh, African Americans on their horses with their sabers looking a little bit
0: like Tarleton's, Tarleton's Legion. That would have been every white settler's nightmare. Absolutely. But you forgot to mention their regimental tune, which is Carolina in a Sultry Climb. Ooh, I did not know about that. Yeah, so I mean, that followed them to the Caribbean until the unit was eventually disbanded. Right, uh, but it it lasted for several generations.
1: Yeah, and I think they started. I'm trying to remember from Gary's dissertation, which he's now working on to be a book, because I think they folded them in. I, I, the British continued to use black soldiers, but I think they the, the, the later ones did not were not treated as well. They were sort of drafted
0: into it, whereas these guys were more voluntary. Woody, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Professor Woody Holton about his new book, Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution. And Woody, before we get back to our general discussion, the cover to your book also tells a story. How about sharing that one?
1: Thanks for asking. You remember I said before the break that there's a sense in which I'm trying to catch people off their guard. So liberty's sweet. You're supposed to think it's Patrick Henry, but then you find out that it's referring to enslaved people. The cover image is meant to do the same thing. And I really need to credit Alan uh, uh, McAllister-Clark, who's the librarian of the American Revolution Institute and the Society of Cincinnati up in Washington, because I was giving a talk. I was getting ready to give a talk down in Charleston, to the Society of the Cincinnati, which is the first sons of the first sons of Mm -hmm. Revolutionary War uh, officers all the way back. Anyway, I was giving a talk down in Charleston, and they said, we really want you to talk about women in the Revolutionary War. And so I think I asked them, would you ask Ellen to see if she can find me any images? And she sent me a lithograph done in the early to mid-19th century of three – British I guess they're officers but three British guys in their red coats on horses um, and they're being waylaid by two Americans on foot and it's telling a true story of these British officers who were carrying a message uh, through the South Carolina backcountry so basically where you and I are talking right now is somewhere not too far from Columbia although closer to close closer to uh, Augusta Georgia. Um, anyway, they were carrying a message for a British officer when they were waylaid by these Americans who took their messages and sent them to an American uh, commander and really helped the American cause by doing that. But I, re- I almost was ready to write Ellen back and say, no, 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 but I needed something depicting women. And had I done so, she would have said, look again, because these we have these three British officers on their horses, but the two... Americans confronting them are wearing men's clothing, but both of them are actually women. So I was so thrilled with that. And and, uh, my audience at the museum, the History Museum in Charleston was, too, that I decided that would be my cover. And the designers of the book at Simon & Schuster did a great job of zooming in. So you're only looking at two guys on horses being waylaid by this one guy. But that guy who's waylaying them is not a guy. It's one of the Martin sisters. One of the Martin sisters,
0: I was going to make sure you got their, their names yeah, out there.
1: Rachel and Elizabeth Martins. And I say sisters, I misspoke because they are sisters-in-law. They both married Martin brothers. And you mentioned this incident. Now I have to tell you, Walter, that I've recently become an addict of Twitter. And I could tell you some of the things I've been up to there. But, but in the course of all of that, I got uh, a tweet from a former student of mine named Lewis Cook saying, uh, oh, yeah, I learned all about – uh, the Martin sisters-in-law from my history professor at the University of South Carolina, and I recognized his name, but I didn't recognize that because I hadn't taught him that. I hadn't known that when Lewis was my student, and so I wrote him offline. Uh, Lewis, who, who, what are you talking about? And the professor at the University of South Carolina that he was talking about was you. <laughs> <laughs> so he was one who had you right before you retired, and me right when I when I first got here, but. I'm pretty honest in my book about the fact that this story was told by Elizabeth Ellen and before her by one of the early 19th century South Carolina historians. I think it was Mills, actually, who um, had told this story. So, so it's, I could say it's got multiple sourcing, but I never found a source from 1780 confirming the story. So I admitted, I don't know if I used the word apocryphal, but it, but it, I, I wouldn't bet my mortgage on it. Would you, though? Do you think it really happened?
0: Uh, I don't know, but you mentioned Ella. It's the source that is connected to South Carolina. She was here for a while, but to me, the revolutionary heroine that that I always bring out uh, is Jane Black Thomas. Yeah, yeah, Uh, that's a wonderful story. I I always compare that to Paul Revere's ride. You know, uh, not very nicely. I mean, hell, all he did was ride down a road, a paved road, and didn't (laughs) to say the British are coming. This woman over sixty steals a horse rise through 50 miles of occupied territory to warn the Spartan regiment, which then ambushes a British raid.
1: Yes, uh, I agree with you. She's much more Paul Revere than Paul Revere was, <laughs> not to take anything from him, but he's part of this whole network of people. that uh, you know. William Dawes was also uh, on a horse, <laughs> and the guy with the lanterns, Old North Church where they hung the two lanterns. And so that was sending the message out. He, uh, and again, this was a collective effort. This wasn't a lone ranger. Um, that the, And in fact, you know, people in New Hampshire knew the British, quote-unquote British, were coming. The regulars were out before they even
0: started marching. Just think if Longfellow had been Mrs. Thomas's uh, yes. descendant, then we would have known. <laughs>
1: and yeah, I'm trying to think of things that rhyme with Thomas. Um, you know, Revere has lots of things that rhyme with it, but, uh, but I, yeah, he would have figured it out. Uh, and that would have been... But, of course, the reason he did it, you know, nothing against Longfellow is living in the 19th century. There were precious few Elizabeth Ellots in the 19th century to get the word out uh, to Longfellow. Now, William Gilmore Sims, I'm told, by a, um, an undergraduate student of mine and a uh, recent winner of the Walter Edgar Fellowship um, named Riley Sutherland. Riley is discovering that William Gilmore Sims and Elizabeth Ellett, uh, it may be proper to describe them as frenemies. You may know that she later got into a real Rowell uh, with Edgar Allan Poe, but she and William Gilmore Sims were friendly. And it's amazing to pick up her book, Women of the American Revolution. I think it's simply called, but it was published in 1848, the same year as the Seneca Falls Declaration. Mm-hmm. And you pick it up thinking, well, this is probably some Northern lady because they're so progressive. They're, for instance, they're mostly anti-slavery up there. But that's not the case at all. It's mostly about Southern women, and it's mostly not about Southern women who sat at home as they're properly supposed to do in the in the 19th century formulation, um, making needlepoint or whatever. They were out there. A bunch of them were kicking ass.
0: Yeah, and actually, you, you mentioned Sims. He has a whole series of revolutionary novels that the history on in them's pretty good, uh, and he is not squeamish about discussing the violence of what was basically a civil war in the Carolina backcountry.
1: Yeah. Can I say real briefly on the violence? Because yeah. there's a recent movement among my generation of historians who think they're discovering that the revolution was violent. Uh, and what they're really doing is
0: rediscovering
1: uh, that it was violent. <laughs> I'm because so, I'm, you
0: know, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I'm you know, uh, I've been riding the Revolutionary War in the South hobby horse for about 25 years, and now I don't feel like I'm the Lone Ranger.
1: Yes. Well, and, and, and I don't want to get back into the, all the errors, um, um, especially with regard to African-Americans in the Patriot, but I do give it credit for one thing. It did let people know that there was a Revolutionary War in the South, and hopefully from, the, from there uh, they'll get to Partisans and Rebels or my book or or – the wonderful work of Jim uh, P. Cooch or or Buchanan. There's a lot of great scholarship. Who wrote that book, um, uh, The Southern Strategy? I'm forgetting. Wilson, I think is his Mm -hmm. first name. There's a bunch of good scholarship on the war. And of course, Charles Baxter is still producing all that amazing um, Southern campaigns.
0: I'll I'll say one more thing that we won't discuss the Patriot again. And that is he gets one thing right. Why people in South Carolina were fighting. Either they started off as... They believed in the Declaration of Independence, and you know they were fighting. And that's, of course, the son in the movie. He he signs up at the Continental to begin with. Right. The other is the dad, supposedly Francis Marion. Right. Uh, only does it once his child has been killed and his and his home has been burned. Right. Uh, vengeance. I mean, so he got that right. Oh,
1: absolutely, absolutely. Think of think of Marion or Sumter, who. Um, his wife, you know, took this heroic stand of not of refusing to tell them she, where he was. She, Go ahead.
0: She was crippled. Not a complete invalid, but she was— oh, When the British came to
1: her house and said, where's your husband? Yeah. She sort of—she's oh, she's, from the, from her bed or whatever says, not here. And so they presumably they carried her out and laid her on the lawn before they burned her house down. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Did not know that.
0: Yeah. And she was today, we'd say a woman of privilege, but— she just said to heck with it there's there's so many cases people say oh that's exaggerated of these frontier housewives standing up to the to the british but we've got british accounts that these scots irish hussies
1: <laughs> right right well and um, at blackstocks it was a woman whose name unfortunately we don't have who rode ahead somewhat similar to jane thomas uh, who rode ahead of tarleton's legion and and warned them that uh, I think he'd send his cavalry ahead and was leaving the artillery and infantry were going to come up a few hours later. So that was the chance to knock out the cavalry, uh, to disable them a little bit because they were outnumbered for that short period, all because a woman got on a horse. Yeah.
0: Woody, let's get back to the hidden history. And in my reading, what it is, you're telling a story, the story of the revolution, and you're making sure that all participants are included. It's not just... George Washington, Thomas Jefferson. It's not just Thomas Sumter and Francis Marion. It's—we've already talked about Jane Black Thomas, the the women. Uh, Francis Marion, as we know, uh, one of the reasons that uh, Gates didn't like working with him is because he had enslaved and free persons of color in his band— so that's something that, when the, when many people talk about the history of the evolution, it is the snare and the bugle and nice white boys walking right. across the field. Right. We haven't touched on the Native Americans, and that's a big part of the story, particularly here in South Carolina. Uh, well, the South as well. I mean, the Cherokee frontier went from Georgia to Virginia.
1: So yes, let me let me talk briefly about Native Americans. In the run-up to the revolution, to the to the war, uh, because uh, one I thought exciting discovery that I made was I finally sat down and read the Stamp Act, which you know nothing can sound more boring, but it's a reminder that all the history books are wrong when they say that the purpose of the money raised by the Stamp Act was to help pay off the huge debt that Britain had coming out of the French and Indian War. No, it was to pay for troops. 10,000 troops would be left in America, some in the Caribbean. But the book on the border, and I think it's proper to call them peacekeeping troops because they were on the Western borders of the British colonies to keep the Indians away from the colonists, but also to keep the colonists away from the Indians so that the colonists wouldn't provoke another war against the Indians because, of course, wars are the most expensive thing. That governments do. And uh, that, that's going to cost something like 300,000 pounds a year. And it's quite reasonable from Parliament's perspective that if we're going to put these troops on the Western border to protect the colonists, then the colonists should pay for them. And I would even go so far, Walter, as just sort of a provocation to say, had there been no Indians or Native Americans, there would have been no Stamp Act because that's what the money was needed for is those peacekeeping troops on the western border. Then once the war gets started, it allows me to to mention a couple of things that I want to say. You know, the Declaration of Independence, sadly, because it's a, such a beautiful document in its entirety, but sadly what it says about Native Americans is that the British have excited – to quote it, Mercy. the merciless Indian savages. And it just makes me so sad that a founding document has this racist phrase, merciless Indian savages. But we need to confront the circumstances of its creation as well as the beauties of the Declaration
0: and, itself. And that was, I would say, continental-wide because the British had divided uh, control of the Native American affairs after the—I'll just use the term French and Indian War, which is what most people— right. I prefer the Great War for the Empire. Yeah, it's much more descriptive. But it it used to be each colony handled its own Indian affairs. But then after that, they said it's going to be, we have to have a continental wide. So they had a Northern Indian agent and a Southern Indian agent. The Southern was John Stewart, who was based out of Charleston. And so he was responsible for everything for Virginia South, mostly dealing with the Cherokee on the frontier here. And one of the things that, Particularly frontiersmen in South Carolina. We need to remember that the Indian frontier, Greenville, present-day Greenville, Oconee, Pickens County, that was Indian territory.
1: Right, right. Where Clemson is now, right? The, yeah, is it all, Clemson or across the river from Clemson? That was the town of Seneca, a Cherokee town.
0: Yeah, the the lower towns of the Cherokee. Right, uh, were, were there? But the folks living in Spartan District, as it was then called, which was allowed to se- settlement after the of the French and Indian War; they were always afraid that the Indian savages were going to come after them because they kept pushing up against the mountains, settling up against the mountains. Right. And, when, and when the revolution does break out, there is an attack on the frontier, but it's yes, some of the Cherokee involved, but a lot of them. Let's go back to the uh, Indians at the Boston Tea Party or Tories dressed up like yeah. Indians yeah. on the Carolina frontier to. Really get this myth going out. The Br- the British are losing the savagery on the frontier.
1: Well, that raises a, a larger issue for me, which is I was astonished to see how many loyalists were willing to join in in bands of Native America. A lot of these were mixed race bands, and of course Marion's and Sumter's bands were mixed race. Uh, as well. And that goes all the way back to the South Carolina regulation, right, where some of the regulators were African-American or, or mixed race. And then one of the things they were doing was enforcing things against African-Americans. So, so uh, one of the things I mentioned at the start, all these present-day conflicts that affect my view of the past, um, some of those modern-day conflicts are along ethnic lines. But the 18th century is a reminder don't get too fixed in your notions of ethnicity because anytime you see a white band, there's probably a, a native or a couple of African-Americans. And anytime you see a Cherokee band, there's a couple of white loyalists fighting with it uh, and so forth. So it's much more mixed up in reality than in people's perceptions. Mm-hmm. But to talk about the the Cherokee War um, – as you know, they blamed John Stewart and they, they came close to arresting him and perhaps worse than arresting him. He escaped to St. Augustine, which uh, Florida was, of course, one of the 13 British colonies that remained loyal to the crown when the other 13 that we are more familiar with rebelled. But so he got away, but there was a strong suspicion that the British were stirring up the Indians. The reality is that in 1775 and early 1776, the British were trying to restrain the Cherokees. They were hoping to, to attack the colonists with help from the Cherokees and, and have sort of a two-pronged attack, but they weren't ready for it to start yet. And so they kept telling the Cherokees, no, 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 not yet. We'll tell you when it's time for you Cherokees to launch your attacks on the colonists. And here's proof that the Indians were not the puppets of the British because the Cherokees did attack when they wanted to, which was in the spring of 1776 because of some horrible things that the colonists had done to them. So they attacked on their own timeline, not when the British told them to. And I think I'm right, Walter, and you'll be the person to check this with. But when the, the South Carolina colonists exacted their revenge on The Cherokee and, of course, attacked right as the corn crop was getting ready to be harvested so they could burn it all. The first South Carolinian to die in that battle was in that town of Seneca um, near where Clemson University is today. The first guy to die was Francis Salvador, who was Jewish. I just think that shows the complexity of early America, that he, he whites was. fighting Natives, first guy to go down his church. And
0: Francis Salvador was the first—he was a member of the Provincial Congress. He was the first person of Jewish faith to be elected to a Western parliamentary body. Anywhere in the world. the Western world. And it that had, is very And it was cool. the Provincial Congress of South Carolina.
1: I'll, you'll be, I'll be happy, I hope, to hear that uh, when I lecture on colonial America, uh, I talk about— Pennsylvania is this great polyglot community, people of different faiths, people of different languages, but so was South Carolina.
0: Except if you were Roman Catholic, didn't want them.
1: But, right, right.
0: But you had everybody else. Yeah, yeah, it is amazing.
1: Now, I think you and I would agree that it's a little bit of the philosophy of John Locke working its way into the into the fundamental constitutions, but it's also they needed labor. It's kind of why Wyoming became the first state to let women vote in 1876, because they were trying to attract women. I think Utah was the second, not not exactly hotbeds of of liberal progressivism, but places that needed women.
0: Yeah. All right, Woody, we need to have another pause and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edwards Journal, and I'm talking with Professor Woody Holton about his new book, Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution. All right, Woody, let's, let's talk about a little bit more about the Native American situation because it's, it's not the same north and south. The proclamation line going back to 1763, draw this line, we're going to separate the colonists on this side, the Native Americans on the other side. That's British imperial policy. How does George Washington react to that?
1: His initial reaction, he called it a temporary expedient to quiet the minds of the Indians. And I I want to stress the last few words of that, quiet the minds of the Indians. He understood that Native Americans were central to British policy. And again, as with African-Americans, the British didn't do this thing that was favorable to the Indians out of the kindness of their hearts or out of being open-minded. Oh, these are people that deserve to keep their land. No, they didn't want to pay for another war against the Indians. But Washington's initial reaction was they can't keep doing this. They can't maintain the proclamation of 1763. And in fact, they were never able to maintain it very much against actual settlers because it's only a paper barrier. It's not like they built a Great Wall of China along the crest of the Appalachian Mountains. And so if you're just somebody who wants to go settle in Kentucky, you go. On the other hand, if you're somebody like George Washington, Washington also said, the greatest estates we have in this colony— were made by taking up the rich backlands, which were thought nothing of in those days, but are now the most among the most valuable we possess. Washington, Jefferson, just about anybody you can name in Virginia, and Benjamin Franklin in Pennsylvania, many others were land speculators. Now, the reality is that Washington he made his biggest money by marrying Martha Dandridge Custis. But he wanted to build on that. And I think there was sort of a sense of manhood there too, of if I want to be somebody who who's building his own fort. And he did. He was one of the biggest landowners uh, in the colonies by the time of the revolution, mostly that speculative Western land. But the British cut it all off with the proclamation line of 1763 and never actually repealed it. And the reason they never repealed it I think if I had to say one group most responsible for that, it was the female peace chiefs in the Native American towns on the Wabash River in what's currently Indiana. Because in 1769, the same year that the Virginia House of Burgesses meeting in what we now call Colonial Williamsburg, sent a petition to the British saying, please, please repeal the proclamation line of 1763 and let us take that Western land, especially Kentucky, in that same year, these female peace chiefs initiated an alliance that brought in almost all of the nations north of the Ohio River. So what's now the the Midwest, Ohio, Indiana. And that's Illinois. pretty
0: that's a pretty incredible accomplishment. Oh
1: yes. They had they had often been enemies of each other. And the even bigger accomplishment, they crossed the Ohio River into Kentucky and what's now Kentucky, Tennessee, before 1769. If you lived north of the river, you were enemies of the nations like the Muscogees or Creeks and the Cherokees. And yet, these women initiated this alliance in 1769 uh, that is finally bringing the the Indian nations north of the Ohio River into alliance with the Indian nations south of the Ohio River. And the British found out and that's what convinced the British to say yes to the Indians and no – Two Virginians like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson were both part of that unanimous vote in the Virginia House of Burgesses saying, let us have Kentucky. The British said, no, you can't have
0: Kentucky. We're leaving it. This is the nightmare of not just the settlers, but also of royal officials, Indian confederacies. Absolutely. What
1: is scary, and Governor Hillsborough, for whom Hillsboro, North Carolina, is named, said in 1772, said what these intel reports were telling Hillsborough, who was the Secretary of State for America over in Britain, that this coalition that these Native women had started, and he said, we'll soon be involved in a general Indian war. That's the one that's scary. A war against a single Indian nation, not so much, but a general Indian war. It's not like they're going to be able to drive the colonists. There were 2.5 million Uh, colonists in the 13 colonies that rebelled by 1776. They're not going to be able to drive them into the Atlantic Ocean, but they are going to be able to launch a big enough war that is going to cost Britain millions of pounds sterling to put it down.
0: Yeah, and of course, eventually, the Cherokee War erupts on the the frontier, and the colonists from Virginia to Georgia unite. They make a common cause against— against the Cherokee all along the frontier. It's not one colony by itself. Just as one of the stories of Kings Mountain is, there were militia from Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, and the -the over-the-mountain boys. Kings Mountain wasn't just these people who were severe, and the boys didn't just come across the mountain. They weren't the only ones there. It was a strange amalgamation of all these frontier militia that made Kings Mountain a success.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. That and those colonels. The most amazing thing to me about King's Mountain is that they succeeded so successfully. When it was, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, Walter, but it looks to me it was run by committee. That is, there was no one guy. There was no general there. It was That's all
0: colonels right. They couldn't agree.
1: Right, and yet those guys, uh, um, and not to take anything away from Morgan, who we talked about at the beginning, but uh, that of course uh, ba- that victory was on October 1780. The way they achieved that victory is that, in my opinion, that the sort of guts of that win was that those colonels understood that militiamen are not cowards. Militiamen are guys c- carrying rifles. You cannot expect a person carrying a rifle to charge because a rifle, you can't put a bayonet on a rifle. And once you fired your one shot, it takes three times as long to reload your rifle as it does— to load um, a, a musket. And so it would have been insane to have them all charge uh, at once. And so what they did was say, go up to the top of the mountain, get close to the Brits, fire a volley, and then run away uh, and, and go back down the mountain far enough to be able to reload when you're not under fire and then come back up. They programmed running away into their strategy, and it really
0: worked. And to use the traditional frontier method to fight behind rocks and trees and that sort of thing, the very ungentlemanly way that they fought the war. Yes,
1: which Native Americans, of course, had been using. Um, you know, we talk about people uh, like Francis Marion as an old Indian fighter. He certainly was, but he was also an old Indian learner that he that he'd learned a lot of his tactics from, from the Native Americans he'd been fighting. Well,
0: and, of course, here in the South, Nathaniel Green was probably the first continental to really understand the way to use militia.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And talking about Green, you've probably had various people quote a dozen times on the journal, but it's worth repeating his wonderful line, we fight, we get beat, we fight again. He understood that what he was fighting was a war of attrition. They did not need to drive the British into the Atlantic. They did not need to capture New York City. All they needed to do was wait them out. Washington, on the other hand, came into the war determined to have this grand, epic battle where you throw the dice and risk everything on this. He wanted to do an amphibious assault against Boston then later plans a string of amphibious assaults against the British in New York. But the thing you have to give Washington credit for is not acting on any of those plans because going on offense – we saw it at Stone o Ferry and in other cases is just as disastrous for the Americans as it is for the British.
0: Yeah. It 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 is amazing. I mean, I, I don't think Green has ever been given the credit that he deserves. You try to resurrect Horatio Gates. Oh yeah. <laughs> and say he had his men placed properly. That that may be true after force marching them through territory where they couldn't get any food except green corn and molasses, so they had diarrhea and were debilitated. I know you quote some folks who say, well, uh, Gates did pretty well. If this had happened, if that happened, the one thing they can't change is he got on his horse and galloped all the way to Charlotte, changed horses, and kept going till he got to Hillsborough.
1: <laughs> right. All right. So this is, I'm really glad you raised this because if I could tell people who are not professional historians one thing about us is we like to disagree with each other we don't we can and we can do it in an undisagreeable way and history's not to me a series of dates it's a series of debates and I'm not sure this is even one of the great debates because I am in a tiny minority in defending Gates. Speaking of debates, there's a rap in there somewhere. Gr- Gr-
0: Granny Gates, Galloper Gates.
1: Well, that I, well, and actually, let me take those as the bookends of the Battle of of um, of, of Camden, um, fought on August 16th, 17. 17- uh, Eighty, uh, the bookends. He doesn't look very good at. As we all know, the main thing a, a general's got to do for his soldiers—they don't fight every day, but they eat. Every, they better eat every day, and his men didn't. He, they ate poorly, and then they. Th- th- anyway, so we all agree on that, uh, and we also agree that he left that battle. Although even that one, I'd say some of his favorable sources said he was headed to the back to try to reorganize them, and he got swept along for whatever that's I won't defend the beginning, and I won't defend the end. I will defend a couple things in the middle. I, I was just telling you, reminding about Bunker Hill, where the British went on offense. Generally, offense is a stupid thing to go on. And Gates has been criticized, why did you attack Camden? Of course, he never made anywhere near Camden, but why did you head towards Camden? And here, I think he's gotten a bum rap because he wasn't. Attacking Camden, he was going down to Saunders or Sanders. You might be able to help me with that creek. To um, because where he was at Rudesley's Mill was not very well defended, and so he wanted to be smart and place his men uh, on the north bank of that creek so that the um, the, Carl, uh, the Cornwallis's men, to, in order to come after them, would have to cross the creek. That was a smart move. He left two hours too late. By the time he got to that area, the British. Coincidentally, an amazing coincidence. They had stepped off at the same time as him, 10 p.m. But they were closer to the creek, and they got over it before he did. And so he had to fight them not in an open field, which would have been even worse, but in in the in the woods. And so I, I say, number one, that um, it's a it's a slander and a slur, sir, to say <laughs> not that you said it, but that many people do say that he was attacking. He was foolishly attacking Camden. He wasn't. The other thing I'd say in his defense was he spotted what he thought was an opportunity. And that is as the two generals, Gates from the north and Cornwallis from the south, were moving their troops from column formation into fighting lines. He thought he saw on the east side of the battlefield— as the British were coming into line, there there was some confusion and they were having trouble getting organized. And so he thought he spotted a weakness and he was trying to exploit that weakness. He would rather have not have led with his militia, but he had a reason for leading with his left because the weakness was on the British right, which faced his left that is on the, the east side of the battlefield. But the point is he led with people that you wouldn't normally lead with, but he did so because he thought he saw opportunity on that side.
0: I would say looking back at, at military history, Gates also had the aroma of Saratoga where he claimed to have actually been the hero of Saratoga when it was Benedict Arnold. So he was not the general Washington wanted to send south anyway. Right. He was a political general. So I think all of that goes into the, the way his story has been told over time. Right. Well, see, mentioning Saratoga, if you ask an average audience today if they've had any American history in high school the revolution, and they'll say, well, it all starts with Bunker Hill, then it goes to Saratoga, and then it's Yorktown. Right. The bulk of the war fighting in the last two years was in the South. Right, right. And ultimately was one, one in the South. All right. Woody, Alfred is giving me the wind-up sign, which means we've got about five minutes to wrap all of this up. What is your favorite hidden story that you uncovered?
1: My favorite thing that I discovered wasn't something I get credit for, but uh, Eric Slaughter, who's a literary historian up at the University of Chicago, he discovered who was the first person to quote the Declaration of Independence. We know who wrote it, Mm -hmm. who was the first person to quote it. And it was Lemuel Haynes, who was a free black soldier serving in the Continental Army. He had a white uh, mother and a black father, so they referred to him as black in those days. And he wrote, sitting at the campfire uh, one night during his Continental Army service, he wrote an anti-slavery pamphlet called Liberty Further Extended. And his epigraph was, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and, and the rest that you know. And that became the first time anybody quoted that. And here's the significance of that. Very few other people during the next quarter century quoted that part of the Declaration of Independence. They were mostly focused on the Declaration of Independence as basically the severing of an alliance between 13 parts of the British Empire. A secession document. I think you should call it a, an ordinance of secession. I completely agree with you because what's Congress trying to do? They're trying to break up with Britain so that they can form an alliance with France. The real audience of the decision to declare independence on July 2nd, not the document, but the decision to break it, make it official, the audience for that was Louis XVI, the King of France. One discovery I did make was that In June of 1776, members of Congress were saying to each other, if we do this decision to declare independence quick enough, we'll have a French Navy in American waters by August of this year, 1776. And so that was the real goal of the declaration. And in that goal of bringing the French immediately into the war, the Declaration of Independence failed because, as you know, it would be another two years before a French Navy and a French Army uh, came to America. They, were, they had secretly been supporting it before the declaration and continued to, but the, the declaration as, a, as an effort to get the, a French Navy into American waters by August 1776 was a failure. A student of mine sort of reproduced Professor Slaughter's research and found this amazing thing. The declaration, the part of it that's now the iconic part, all men are created equal, that got quoted 27 more times in the 18th century until 1799, in newspapers and pamphlets and all that, 27 more times. Of those 27 quotations of the Declaration of Independence, eight were by people who were not writing anti-slavery documents. 19 of the quotations from the Declaration's all men are created equal, came from abolitionists, both black and white, Benjamin Banneker along with Lemuel Haynes. And so what those abolitionists did was shift the focus of the Declaration of Independence from the right of secession to all men are created equal. And they turned this failed secession document into the most successful freedom document
0: ever created. Woody, I cannot add anything to that. That's beautifully said. Professor Woody Holton, author of Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution. Thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. Thanks, Walter. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. I've enjoyed many conversations with Woody over time, and Liberty is Sweet is an intriguing book, not just because it talks about the hidden history of the Revolution, but as Gordon Wood, who is another historian of the Revolution said, this is a spirited account of the Revolution that brings everybody and everything into the story. And it truly does, especially when it comes to the story of the revolution in the South and the revolution in South Carolina. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.